Like I've never, ever, ever felt happiness at times where I wasn't giving. And it doesn't mean you have to give money. It means like giving your time and giving like your kindness and giving a word of advice. And in Islam, like for us, the word for charity is sadaqah. And one of the ways to like to give sadaqah is with a smile. Like you mm. literally get good deeds for smiling at somebody because you don't ever know what they're going through. Hello, damn good family. Welcome to Let's Give a Damn, a podcast about people who give a damn, by people who give a damn, and for people who give a damn. Thank you so much for being here. I know you could be doing a million other things, but you're here, and that's really, really cool. So five or six weeks ago, I told you we would occasionally be re-airing episodes from the past. Here's why. So many more people are hearing about the podcast and listening now, but they may not have the time to go back and listen to all 100 plus episodes that we've put out up to this point. Additionally, you don't remember what happened yesterday, if you're honest, let alone what happened over a year ago on this show. So even if you listened to this episode when it aired a while back, you need to hear it again, my friends. My guest today is Noor Tagori. Noor is a Libyan American Muslim woman. She is a friend, an activist, a journalist, a storyteller, a podcaster, a speaker, and so very much more. Basically, she is a force to be reckoned with. Since I recorded our conversation a while back, she has been very, very busy, but I wanted to point out one project here in the intro that she has done that I've loved so much. She created and hosted a podcast called Sold in America. It's an eight episode journey into the world of selling sex in the United States. In it, she takes you, the listener, across the country to meet the human faces of this billion dollar industry and trade. Along the way, she uncovers many surprising misconceptions. So friends, make sure to check out that series. This conversation originally aired on July 11, 2017. Let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with Noor Tagori. Very glad you're here. Let's start at the, I always like to begin with what, trying to figure out what made you, what, what are the kinds of things that made you who you are today, right? So let's go back to as far back as you want, uh, childhood, your earliest memories, family, experiences in your life, the kinds of things that you can point to and say, this is most likely the reason I am the way that I am today. Because I would love to hear as much or as little as you want to share. Okay, so my first impulsive answer was going to be my parents made me and then I realized that like that literally they, they made me. Literally. But, but, but they actually like when you say it that way they made yeah. me my first go-to thought is my dad um because you know when you're a kid and like you're a brat <laughs> yeah and um you're picking arguments with your parents and stuff but like you also see that they want what's best for you and I just like now more than ever I realize I'm very 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 similar to my dad and mm. the reason for that is like when I was a kid and I was eight years old I was obsessed with stories and I was I until now like never leave the house without a book um but I was also really obsessed with asking questions and telling stories and that's what I was good at and my parents noticed that in me at a very mm. young age um, and my dad would talk to me as if I was an adult, make me watch the news and was very, very like headstrong about making sure that I cared about my school. Like to the point where if I got to be in school, oh. I would get grounded. Yeah. Like if I got to be on a test, I would get in trouble. And I remember like throwing fits about like, well, why is 
Um, Oh my gosh, I have a vivid memory of elementary school. Why does Kevin Bowen's parents give him $25 for a C on his report card, but I get in trouble for a B on a test, and they were just very tough with me in that way, and I'm so grateful for it now. Um, Are your parents, sorry to interrupt, are your parents, uh, did they grow up here, or did they come over? So my mom came to the U.S. when she was 10, 11. Um, Her father worked for the U.N. and the World Bank. Um, representing Libya. Both my parents are from Libya. And my dad came here when he was 27 for medical school. So he, um, I was born in West Huntington, West Virginia. And that's where my dad was living. But I lived there for eight days. And oh. then we moved to South Alabama and Birmingham, Alabama, and then Southern Maryland. And that's where I grew up. How is it like growing up as, well, just your family, your family makeup in places like Huntington, West Virginia, Selma, Alabama, Bur- Birmingham, Birmingham yeah. Alabama. So I don't remember any of the, anywhere except for Southern Maryland because I was three when we moved to Southern Maryland. But I know that um, my mom started wearing the headscarf when she was in Selma, Alabama. <clears throat> so it was after I was born. And I know that my dad had like even said like, are you sure you want to put it on in a place like this? Like nobody in the area had that on. She was like, if I'm going to do it anywhere, I'm going to do it here. And so she was very confident in that from like um, from when I was a baby. And then we moved to Southern Maryland. I grew up there. So that's all I ever knew. But even from when I was a kid, I knew that I was different. And as silly as this sounds – I can't say that I knew that I was different because I was Arab or because I was Muslim. Like, I knew I was different in school because of my hair color and my eye color. Like, I always um, start my talks off by an experience from first grade when I remember walking into class and sitting down next to the only other girl who had dark brown hair and asking her if she was Muslim, too, because I had never seen another girl at school with brown hair. And, um, And that was something that I was really insecure about all the time. I remember, like my dad's coworkers or people just saying, oh, you have really pretty eyes. And I'd say, no, my eyes are ugly because they're brown, you know, because like our beauty standards and the people that we would see on television, mm-hmm. they were always blonde yep. hair and blue eyed. And that's like what I, what we would see as beautiful. And that's not only like our culture, that's even in, in Arab culture and sure. in Middle Eastern culture, like people love Western beauty. And that's like what yeah. was always better. I had cousins in Nibia who were blonde hair and blue eyed because some of our family has those traits and some of their si- – like one of the sisters has brown hair and green eyes and I always thought she was the prettiest but people called her the ugly duckling because she wasn't blonde and blue-eyed and that was kind of like the mentality that I had in my head. My parents never instilled that in me at all and so like I, I actually remember growing up and my mom having me stand in front of a mirror and, and like say, who is that beautiful girl? Like who is that courageous girl? Who is that strong girl? And like be very um, reaffirming. But that's just like when you're at school and you stand out – and you're different, like that's not anything that someone who's eight, nine years old ever wants to be. Um, so that was kind of where my insecurity started in my identity. So it didn't even stem from religion, it just stemmed from looking different. Gotcha. This is kind of off the cuff, but it has to do with what we're talking about. But because you mentioned uh, the headscarf, um, I was listening to a podcast yesterday with Sam Harris. Have you ever interacted with Sam Harris? Yeah, no. I saw your face just now. What was that? You know who he is? Yes. Yeah. So bad news. Yeah. Um, I mean, so smart, but yes. Um, so he was talking with Freed Zakaria. This is just one that just came out, and oh, they ha- they had they had a discussion. It, it came up the whole you know the whole how is that a statement of you know 
women being able to express themselves freely when it, they're clearly not they're clearly not free to do what they want. What would what do you? I know this is super random because he's not going to listen to this. But what would you say to Sam? What What are your thoughts on? It's that? not even my thoughts. It's it's what's Islam's yeah. stance on it. Like I. I chose to wear the hijab when I was 16 years old. My mom chose to wear it when she was 22 years old. Um, the root, first of all, like what people need to understand is in the religion itself, there is a very like powerful verse that strictly says there is no compulsion in religion. And so every hmm. single action that you take in Islam has to stem from your intention. So even if you carry out an action and your intention wasn't for that, it doesn't count. So if somebody's going to say, um, you need to wear the headscarf and the person doesn't want to and wears it because somebody else told them to, it doesn't count. Mm. So it stems from that choice in, 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 in women and men, because men do have a hijab, most people don't realize that, um, making that choice. Another thing is that it is a very personal choice. And so when you put on the hijab, my reason for doing it isn't going to be the same reason as the next person. Sure. And so if a lot of people, like the most common, um, I guess, reason that people say that they wear the hijab or, or, or what it means is, is a symbol of modesty and how people interpret modesty is totally different oh, totally. from one another, yeah. right? So I, I can't sit here and say that I put this on to like be more modest in my dress. If I didn't believe that God told me to wear this or that this was something preferred that I, I probably I wouldn't be wearing it. Mm. But that is my belief. And on top of all of that, to me, growing up and being so obsessed with like the way that I looked and being insecure in my differences and in, in how I appeared and and knowing that like I had a voice and that I wanted to make a difference in storytelling and in having people see other each other's truths, wearing this was a way to not only humble myself, but remind myself that I'm like, I'm here for something much bigger than just me. And it's making a statement like when you are, when we are in a conversation, what I say means more than what my body looks like. At the same time, I am 110% um, of the belief that no one has a right to tell women how to dress or anyone for that matter. And so when I have friends who are campaigning free the nipple, like, but also defending my right to wear the hijab, like, I will always be on the side of, like, if you're not hurting other people, then you should be able to to dress the way you want, mm. to express yourself the way that you want, to practice your religion the way that you want, because that's what I was always taught. Sam Harris, I hope you hear that. <laughs> I'm going to tweet at him. You should. I'm going to. Ugh. <laughs> I, your face immediately. I wish. I wish. I hope one of those cameras catches it. It was just. It was just. Uh, it just. Well, I saw your face. It's so. It's That's so what I feel bad, about though. a lot of. The, you know, Fareed was. He was amazing. Like he was. Yeah. He was very well spoken and well thought out. And it's most interesting of what though Sam, that they had a guy on for that conversation. It wasn't strictly about that, but it uh, came up because that's something he that Sam always talks about. Yeah, he does talk about that, and it's interesting because he's also a guy. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, my face never hides anything. Yeah, that's good. Mm. What do you, what do you call what you do? Who you are? Are you reporter, journalist, speaker, activist? I'm a storyteller. Storyteller. Yeah, I just I tell stories, whether it's my story or giving other people a platform to ter- share their stories and try to gain their trust so that we can exchange stories. Like, that's just really what it is. Um, and I do it in different platforms. So yeah. whether it's 
Yeah, explain some of those. Yeah. yeah so, so I work um, as a reporter for Newsy, but I work on documentary series, and then in between I find stories that we work on. Um, and so the thing that's unique about it is I work for the Policy Bureau, but I'm not a political reporter. Um, that's not really my thing. So I find more subculture stories to cover. So when I started, I um, was working on a series called Americanize Me. So I traveled the country and profiled um, people of it, like people who are immigrants or immigrant families and how they brought their culture and their foods and how their foods have immigrated to the U.S. Um, so covered policy in that way. And that's actually how I ended up going to Tennessee. I covered a Syrian refugee who opened up a falafel shop in um, mm. Knoxville. And then um, in between covered stories, whether it was undercover graffiti artists or New York Fashion Week or even like the reality of being a witch in Salem, um, things that people really wouldn't expect. And then I went on for months working on a series that I did called A Woman's Job. Um, so women who work in male-dominated fields. So we covered a blacksmith, a farmer woodworker, a chemist, chemical engineer, executive chefs, um, and the only ever woman NFL coach, and an auto mechanic. And now for the past few months and for the next few months, I've been working on and will be working on a series on sex trafficking in the U.S., which was a cause that I care about and I've cared about since I was about 14 years old. Um, and so working on a documentary series that covers aspects of that that nobody has really talked about. And well, yeah. What do you mean by – can you care to explain yeah, what, that, so, what, what um, that means? First of all, when you talk to your average American about sex trafficking, their head is going to go to most likely a movie like Taken. Yeah. Um, or they're going to think of something that happens in Nepal and Thailand and Cambodia. Instead of two miles down the street. Instead of not even two miles down the street. Right. Instead of your next door neighbor. Sure. And the problem with that is that we constantly care about this issue overseas, but we forget to acknowledge the fact that it happens here. And there are so many different names to it. And so, um, and there's so many different looks to it that people like to ignore. So when you see a girl who the other day, actually, I saw in DC, like at six in the morning, two girls totally naked on the street. And most people who are going to walk by that and have mm -hmm. their own judgmental thoughts, but I remember calling up one of the survivors in our area and saying, hey, I saw these two girls who were on the street. And she was like, yeah, that street is pimp controlled by these pimps in, in Florida. And so they're working for him. And um, and not only what trafficking entails in the U.S., because probably the biggest thing that I've learned while reporting on this is the way that journalists or the media covers it. So recently, CBS did a, like a almost 10-minute piece on trafficking and opened it up by, um, some call it the oldest profession in history. And they went into prostitution. Wow. And I was just like, oh, my God. Like, this is doing such a disservice sure. to what these women are actually going through. They yeah. had they had pictures of three white women and said these are the face of prostitution. And I was just like, well, no, an overwhelming majority of the women who are being trafficked and sold for sex are actually black women. Um, and an overwhelming majority of the buyers are white men. And so um, – <clears throat> So delving into how trafficking is far beyond just an issue about people wanting to buy sex. Mm -hmm. It's an issue of uh, race, income inequality, gender inequality, um, and so on. But we're breaking down the series by covering aspects of it, um, including the heroin epidemic and trafficking, um, including the entire buyer's aspect of it. 
So who the buyers are. So actually that's why we spent a week in Seattle covering um, what most people refer to as Johns, what people mm-hmm. in the life refer to as tricks, um, and and the demand side and uh, the Nordic model, which is focusing on capturing or arresting the pimps, traffickers, and Johns and not the women and children um, or even the boys who are being prostituted. We're also covering the debate around legalizing um, legalizing sex work. Um, I know there's six episodes. Online trafficking, the front lines of like the law enforcement and the medical profession um, and how they're, te- they're responsible for being able to notice trafficking when it comes along because people in nail salons and flight attendants mm-hmm. and hotel concierge are being trained for this, but why aren't um, law enforcement and medical professionals being trained as much? And, yeah, mm. those are some of the ones off, off the top of my head, the foster care pipeline um, with this because majority of the people who are trafficked in the U.S. have gone through some type of government care. So it's been a very, 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 very intense uh, four months. Yeah, what does that maybe? do to you emotionally? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't even know how to answer that because the people around me are probably, I don't know. I can never go a day without talking about it. That's one thing. Like, I, I've never, since we've started working on this, and I've, I've cared about this issue. I've done papers. I've done stories. Um, we even worked on, if we're going into the clothing line, collaboration with Listen Up. Like, that was the cause that I did was combating sex trafficking because I'm so obsessed with this um, issue. And it just becomes overwhelming, and it takes a toll on you because now I think, like, the sim- the simplest way to put it is, like, I now realize why my parents never let me spend the night when I was a kid at my friends' houses. Um, I walk into, like, the workplace or just walk on the street, and all I'm thinking about is, like, oh, my God, which one of you is buying sex? Yeah. Because when I was in Seattle and I walked into the buyer's class, I was shaking, like, in my boots. Like, my stomach was in knots, and I almost started crying because I realized that all of the men that I was looking at who were here because they had bought sex – looked like the people that I worked with, that I went to school with. Like, you, there's never a look for it. You would no. never be able to tell. And so I was just terrified, and I was like, oh, my God, like, how are we living in this society? And, like, there's such a strong sense of toxic masculinity that, masculinity that overwhelms our communities, and people are either too scared to address it or we're so comfortable with it or we're so used to it that it's not something that we call people out on. Um, and... Every single thing that I that I see, that I watch, that I hear, I feel like is rooted in this issue almost um, because it is a culture that we have created that allows for this to flourish. How does it get? This is a dumb question. How does it get fixed? Because it's it's not an easy answer. (laughs) But like, I guess, what's the end goal? Like, what do you want to see happen? What do you want to see like ignited in people so that we can get closer to the fix? Right. That is such a complicated question because. it's not something that will as long so long as there's a demand to yeah. buy sex there's always going to be which won't i mean but but here's the thing when it was only a few decades ago maybe even a couple where smoking cigarettes was super cool like people were always smoking it was like the cool thing to do and then campaigns like wide and far pretty much shunned people who were smoking cigarettes and and it was seen as something disgusting and like it 
it's one of those things that it's, it's ne- it would never be as easy. But until we make buying sex something that is looked down upon in our culture, there's always going to be a demand for it. Yeah. And there's always going to be acceptability. Like think about, you have to think about it in the most basic ways. Where, where does some of this start? So like if your friend is having a bachelor party and you want to buy him a stripper and then you want to buy him a prostitute, which by the way, a lot of the times those women like who are being trafficked or who are survivors have said like even when they're in the room with the guy, the guy says something like, I don't want to do this, but don't tell my friends I didn't. Mm. So what does that mean? That means that he doesn't want to participate, but he'll look a certain way that if he doesn't, so he still wants his friends to think that he went forward with it because it's cool. It makes him seem masculine. It makes him seem more of a quote man. And this is stemmed in this toxic masculinity where you are constantly looking at women or looking at sex a certain way and allowing for harassment or assault to be kind of brushed, like brushed off as something that's okay. And so until guys are more comfortable with, and even women are more comfortable with calling out this kind of culture. Mm -hmm. So like if you're in the locker room or you're with your friends and you hear a guy talking about a girl a certain way or talking about sex a certain way and you're silent, it's just as bad. It's just as bad as egging it on until you're like, that's not cool. Like, why do you think that's okay? And break down that if this was your sister, if this was your mom, or if this was, it doesn't even have to be, if this is a person and that you, like, you should care enough to realize that this isn't okay. And I mean, it's, it's an entire culture and what they're doing in Seattle is very progressive. It's also like the only place in the U.S. that's taken this approach, Mm. um, where they're addressing this from a demand perspective, but also from dismantling the patriarchy and addressing toxic masculinity. Very complicated. Yeah, it it really is. But I mean, like, at the end of the day, if you hear someone catcalling or if you hear your guys talking crap or trying to, like, build their heads up by talking about women a certain way, tell them it's not cool. Like, you don't think that's cool. Yeah. This show and this whole idea and project exists to help people do that. My whole... My whole aim is to take away the excuses people use to not give a damn, right? That's the whole thing is like speak up, start, begin right now, not another moment because we can come up with all the excuses. That guy in the locker room or that guy with this – like he can come up with a million excuses. To, boy talk. Right. Yeah, we have – Yeah. <laughs> all the way from the top, right? We have yeah. that where it was like, oh, it's okay because it was locker room talk instead of like, no, that's not right anytime, anywhere, ever. ever. Yeah. And 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 – until you realize that that is the root of oppression of women in our society today when it comes to when it comes to an issue like trafficking like it's never going to go away it's never going to be easier um and i don't know it's it's hard especially with everything that's going on today to be vigilant in making sure that people are, are really more aware yeah. of the damage that something like this does yeah what role does your faith play in everything that you're doing My and faith, everything you aim to do in your life? My faith is absolutely everything to me um, because one thing that's different about Islam as a religion is that it isn't just going to church or going to the mosque to pray. 
it is an entire lifestyle. So you pray five times a day, you fast, you give charity, um, but you, but it all comes down to your character and the way that you choose to live from how you wash yourself in the bathroom to how you greet people with peace. Every single detail is something that you're supposed to have an intention for and is supposed to build your character up. And so for me, what I'm doing as a storyteller, what I'm doing as a feminist is so strongly rooted in my religion and the examples that I've been given because it was always taught to me that whenever you have the opportunity to help those who are oppressed or whenever you have the opportunity to speak up or whenever you have the opportunity to give and give and give, then you take it. And that is all re- like that is all rooted in my religion. And so every single choice that I make, I'm seeking guidance for. And every single opportunity that I take, I've sought guidance for and I'm taking on because I feel like it'll it'll help me in fulfilling my life's purpose. And that is rooted in my faith. Uh, one of my favorite Martin Luther King Jr. quotes is, and it's really uh, the impetus for this project, is our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. And I truly believe that. I've lived my whole life on that premise that like when I, it goes back to what you just said, right? Like when we are silent about things that matter, we begin to disintegrate in more ways than, than, than one, because that's what it's, it's about standing up and uh, believing in something and acting on those beliefs, right? And so the Let's Give a Damn family, uh, I refer to them as unsilent people because I want them to speak up and speak out, not with just verbally, but with their lives. What would you, and a lot, most of them are, we actually have listeners all across the spectrum, old, older people that have already quit their jobs to like go do that thing that they've been avoiding for years because it didn't yes. pay as much or, and we've got people all over the place, right? But they're mostly millennials. What would you say to them? So they, they, they really want to give a damn. They really want to get going. They want to answer the call they feel in their heart. Give them, us, a few pieces of advice. How can they begin right now to give a damn? So you mentioned that there are older listeners who are like retired and now pursuing yeah. what their heart tells them yeah. to do. I believe that our life's purpose um, or this personal legend that people have set for them is something that we are familiar with for a very long time. It's something that we've known since we were very young. Like I knew that I was good at telling stories or that's what made me happy. But it's the societal standard, the fear of not making enough money, what people think, what your family thinks, what your friends think, Mm. um, and just an overwhelming amount of fear that kind of keeps people from doing it and has like gives you this blurred vision towards whatever it is that you know you're meant to do and then you kind of fall into this place of comfort. Um, And I always say like I believe that everything you want is outside of your comfort zone. So if you're comfortable and if you're stagnant, then you are in the worst place you can Mm be. Um, But also for me, it was always taking that skill. So if I was good at storytelling or if I was good at finding platforms to tell stories, taking that skill and combining it with causes that pain you. So for me, the cause was... Um, combating sex trafficking, but in general, just raising awareness about sexual assault and sexual harassment and feminism in that way, especially because of the background that I come from. Um, Because there is this huge misunderstanding that 
because I'm dressed a certain way, because I cover my head that Muslim, like that I'm oppressed or that Muslim women are oppressed. And in, in fact, it is the complete opposite. It means that I've reclaimed my power as a woman, that I focus on what my voice has to say. And that when I am sharing a story or when I'm telling you something, you are going to pay attention. And like, this is part of who I am. And I'm unapologetic about it. And so using that skill and combining it with those causes that pain me the most and other causes, the misrepresentation of marginalized communities and groups of people. And because of that, I've been able to gain the trust of so many people who have so graciously given me their stories to share and their truths to share. And every single time um, a relationship is created and like a friend is found and that like even if I don't agree with all of their views or they don't agree with all of mine or even if there are like our paths weren't similar at all that we've collected each other and that we have made a stronger connection and, and therefore created a stronger story because mm. there is this just understanding between both of us that I know what it's like and you know what it's like and so we're going to be totally raw and vulnerable in doing this and so when you're able to find whatever the skill is that you know that you're good at or that that you enjoy so much and then causes that pain you that you really want to take on. And it can be one, it can be many. Like there's no, I know it's overwhelming sometimes to think about the problems of the world and then just think like, I don't even know where to start. Like mm. just take that first step and do what feels right in your heart and then things will just come to you. Like it'll just always happen. And and don't, I mean, we have so many social justice activists and, and and people online who are just, it's like very saturated right now where people are very loud and people are very angry and people are caring so much and doing a lot, but but don't compare yourself and don't pay attention to that and just find find the things that you know you can be a part of and make a difference in and just do it slowly by slowly, like day by mm-hmm. day. Um, my mom is a huge example of that. So she... Um, was a guidance counselor. And then when I was around 12 years old, we were at a convention and she came across a table of a women's shelter. And she was just like, I, I want help. Like I just, she, my mom's biggest thing is that she can't stand seeing people who are hungry. And um, and at the time we, we connected with the founder of the shelter and this was like 11 years ago. And uh, they they were like, we don't, we don't need food right now. We just need toiletries. Like our women need shampoo and conditioners. And, um, pads and tampons and body wash and like creams like th- whatever you can find that like we just that's what our women need right now and so I remember we started a drive at my school and we started collecting stuff and then and this was the key thing that my mom did was she listened she didn't go out and she didn't say I'm going to bring you this I'm going to bring you that she said what do you guys need from me and I will give and so w- it was toiletries at one point, and then it became food, or and then it became toiletries again, and then it became a new refrigerator, or whatever it was. And we would always just listen. And until now, we still we do monthly grocery runs where we take a list of the stuff that they need at the shelter right now, like what groceries, what foods the women and children want to eat, not what we think they should they should be eating. And we go out and we get them. And um and and that was one thing that she always did, and it was something that always pained her and now like has been a part of like a family tradition like of what we we work on and so just being able to see her and my dad as an example of um of taking on taking on like the smaller causes that are close to home because like one person can't solve world hunger but if you Mm. know your neighbor is hungry then you help yeah the difference is this savior complex versus being a humble Oh, listener, absolutely. Right? The savior thing is very temporary. It might look flashy for a minute, but it's, it's going to go away because you're not really listening to what the actual needs are. When and I, the intention isn't even there. 
Right. Like it's if if you're going into doing whatever it is for whatever cause because it's going to make you look a certain way or if it's going to make you feel just because it's going to make you feel so like and when you help you're always going to feel good but it's 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 a very hard battle because you're also going to feel be- very bad because you're going to realize that you can't do everything and there's so much that needs to be done but if you know you're doing as much as you can and then you're doing what people need of you yeah. then it's always going to be okay but the second like and the thing is People can sense bullshit. Yeah. They can see if yeah, like can. if if you're ingenuine and the help. And and I've seen it so many times. I've encountered it so many times where people have this savior complex, have this like sense of arrogance where they think that they're doing so much for the community when in turn like it's so loud and it's so apparent that your intention isn't even there. And people can feel that. Yeah. And not saying like you can't post about the stuff that you're doing, but like even for, for for my mom and I, we'll post about the grocery runs because the way that we do it, and this is how we've always thought about it, is we post and we say, hey, we're doing it this month. If you want to contribute, you can donate here. Um, but it's not that we're trying to show off. It's that we're trying to give, and I always call it a good deed opportunity because we want to give other people the opportunity to do something good. Mm. And people will always write and be like, thank you so much for allowing us this opportunity. You know, like we don't want to keep it all for ourselves. And and not only that, but it inspires other people to go out and do the same thing. Like how many people are doing that in their own communities now? And it all stems from like wanting to give others the opportunity and realizing that you are nothing without like your own blessings and sense of thanks, but also that whatever your situation is can be gone in a second. And and at the end of the day, when you're the one who's in need or when you're the one who who like is in need of help or food or whatever it is, are you going to be able to say that when mm-hmm. you were able to give that you gave too? And a lot of people see it as a sense of like, oh, well, when I donate or when I give, I'm losing money or I'm losing food or I'm losing whatever it is. Um, but I don't know, the way that my family has always seen her, my mom has always, like my mom has cried to me saying this before, but that she's, it's such a blessing to be in that in that position because when you're able to give, like you are always gaining 10 times more. Yeah. Whether it's actually. Always true. And, and that's the thing. It's like, t- it's so crazy to me how people don't realize that. Yeah. It's so apparent. Like, just trust me, just give one time. Just have, but, but with good intention in your heart. Right. And even in Islam, we have a saying like, "When if you give with your right, like give it, give with your right in a way where like your left doesn't even see it, and like, yeah. be, like do it humbly and 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 realize that what you're doing, like you giving to that person, you're not losing anything." Yeah, well, I think you just said something very important because many people have given and they don't feel fulfilled and good about it after because they didn't do it with the right motive, so then they just quit instead of instead of saying, "What the hell did you just do that that way for?" They just end up not giving anymore because that didn't feel right. That didn't feel good. There was no ROI or whatever, you know? Yeah. And so there are a lot of people that did give that one time but did it poorly, and now they're they're suffering. They don't see themselves as suffering, but they're suffering now by spending all them, their time on themselves, uh, four hours of Netflix every night, just a very self-centered sort of life because they did try it, but it didn't work out. It didn't, it didn't feel good. It didn't, you know? And at that point, ask yourself if you're happy. Yeah. Like I've never, ever, ever felt happiness at times where I wasn't giving. And it doesn't mean you have to give money. It means like giving your time and giving like your kindness and giving a word of advice. And in Islam, like for us, the word for charity is sadaqah. And one of the ways to 
like to give sadaqa is with a smile. Like you mm. literally get good deeds for smiling at somebody because you don't ever know what they're going through. Absolutely. And it's as simple as that. Like we walk around with our heads so high in such like arrogance where we feel like the world revolves around us. And in reality, there are so many people who are going through so much more than yeah. you could ever imagine. Yeah. And for you to ever think that like, well, like what's it to me? Like, why should I care? It's one of those things that like even when – and it's so sad. I know so many people whose like parents taught them, well, you don't give to people on the, str- on the street because they're just going to go buy alcohol. They're going to go like buy drugs. And one of my friends in New York actually told me this because I was like, I, I know that that's a possibility, but you never know. And so I like I will still always give. And then she was like, well, even if you don't know, even if they are going to go buy drugs, who are you to say yeah. that they can't? Yeah. If and and, and the, the reason that this is so strong in my head now is because I recently interviewed for this series a friend of mine that I've known since elementary school who's a heroin addict, and she broke down to me her, like what heroin, what the addiction is, and an addiction, especially with heroin, is a disease. Like it's an overwhelming thing that when pe- when typical people who are not addicts need air to survive, need food to survive, need water to survive, an addict needs drugs to survive, like actually, or they will die. And who are you to say? I'm not gonna like I'm not gonna give them anything because I'm better than them and they're and they're like a bad person. Which th- th- being an addict doesn't make you a bad person. Um, but and just walk away from that unless you're gonna hold their hand and yep. walk them to detox and walk yep. them to rehab. Like who are yep. you to say that? Yep. And so I that's why like if you ever have anything, if I ever like whenever I see anyone, if I have the ability to give at that moment, I will. I love cities like this because we get opportunities to do that very often, right? It just just dying to myself and saying like, I don't know what they're going to do. But like you said, that's not my issue. I've already given away. I gave away my breakfast this morning. I bought three bottles of water so far. Um, like so many things have happened already that uh, it's. I love it. And I feel... I don't know what they did with this stuff. I feel great. I feel fulfilled. That's the thing is it, it like and it and it's okay for you to feel good about it after yeah. like people don't realize that when you are doing that when you're giving that it's more for you than anything else. Like the fact that that opportunity was there, you didn't do anything for them. They did something for you. Like they made you feel good. Like you were able to check off that good deed of the day. Like that's something that you are going to be able to go to sleep with. Yeah. So if anything like it's just a matter of changing perspective and, yep. and we're so obsessed with ourselves and so caught up with what people are saying, what people think, like putting on a show for everyone else that we forget that that's what's important. That's what's really going to make you happy. Um, so you're an accomplished 23-year-old. You've done a lot so far. What are some of the uh, practice daily practices that you have so that you can put yourself in a place to give a damn, to do the work that you do? What are the kinds of things that a give a dammer like you does? Give a dammer. Okay, that's a great question. So, um, I mean, this sounds cliche, but the day, like I always try to start my day with giving thanks. So even when I wake up, there's like the first thing that you say when you wake up, um, well, it's in Arabic and I'll translate it. It's alhamdulillah like just giving thanks for being alive mm. again after your sleep. Yeah. Because um, we didn't do anything to stay, <laughs> stay alive. Yeah. You know? And then um and then I always try to think of three things that I'm grateful for. This is either in the morning or in the middle of the day or at night. Um, three things that I'm grateful for that's different than like just new things that I'm grateful for. And the reason that I do that is because 
when you are constantly thinking of different things that you're grateful for, you are rewiring your brain to look for good and look for positivity so in your day. It's not just so important. It's necessary. Yeah. Like yes. it is so mandatory. It's yeah. insane. And so when you think of three different things that you're grateful for throughout the day, you're always going to be seeing good in everything because even like a couple of days ago, I had a really rough night and by the end of the night, I was still able to see good in what happened. Yeah. And the only way that you're able to do that and not drown in the negativity that is our society today is if your mind is already rewired to a place where you're able to see good and positivity and opportunity and light in every single crevice of mm. darkness. And um, so that's something. So even with the people that I'm very close to, like well, we can sit in silence for a while and then all of a sudden I'll ask like, so what are you grateful for today? Or I'll text my friends and be like, what are you grateful for today? Because I'm curious to like make them think, but also to just be able to remind myself of the things that, um, that I could have been grateful for today or I could have recognized today and, and then maybe recognize them down the line. Um, another thing is whenever I'm engaging in conversation with people before I talk to them, or if I know I'm about to have a conversation, um, instead of saying, Hey, how are you? Because that's very cliche. And your, your answer is like, Oh, I'm good. How are you? Um, if I'm comfortable or if I know it'll be okay to ask, I say, how is your heart? Mm. Um, so I always start with that. And that is, um, one, because I'm always interested to see how people answer that. Because some people who are Catch not used guard, to, sure. oh my God, yes. Like, wh what? Like, wait, what did you just ask me? Um, and some people who are not very comfortable with answering will be like, well, it's beating. And then some people will be like, oh my God, no one has, most people say yeah. the first time I ask them, no one has ever asked me that. And then they really think, and I'm like, okay, well, think about it. Like, I actually care. Like, I want to know, like, how's your heart? Like, how do you feel today? Um, and so it's kind of become like my signature thing. Um, I like it. Yeah. And then just, I'm like very obsessed with like scheduling and time, like time management. And I, man, like we see so many successful people today and that depends on how you define success, of course. Sure. But it's just so important to start the day and end the day recognizing whether or not that you took a direction or a step in towards your life purpose or towards achieving this personal legend of yours that is a never ending journey and recognizing that it is a never ending journey. And so um, for me, like just being very conscious and more mindful, and that's something that I'm also working on. Um, and then finally, I would say it's okay to read your comments once in a while. It's okay to read the tweets once in a while. It's okay to like, I don't know, skim them, I guess. But understand that what people say about you is none of your business. It it really isn't. And sometimes it is so hard even for me to understand that and to remember that. But the second you make what other people think about you your business, you begin to muddy your 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 journey and your intention and your personal legend because you'll find yourself doing things for other people. And I have been able to let go of that a long time ago where even when I was like I gained attention or whatever you want to call it, when I was about 18 years old, like mate, like when everything kind of blew up for me. Um, and I had no idea what I was doing. I had people in my community who were grown ass men who would reach out to me and say, you don't deserve this. Like you didn't work for this. Wow. And for me, like looking back at it, it's a reflection of their own insecurity because I didn't ask for this. No. And that if, it, if, if things happened a certain way for me, it is because it was meant to. And I will not question that. No. Um, and, but at the time, of course, I would like, doubt myself and be like, why did this happen? Like, do I deserve this? Maybe I should stop. Maybe I should whatever. And then of course, like I have an incredibly supportive family and I never did, but just realizing time and time again, that like 
Only people who are insecure about themselves and are full of negativity themselves are going to be the ones that impose that kind of energy on you. And so it is none of your business. It's nothing for you to, to carry and take on. And um, to really just take care of yourself at the end of the day, like I've been so overwhelmed with uh, working on this series and it's very, 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 very heavy. It's heavier than I could have ever imagined um, and haven't really had time to do come some like self-care. Um, mm. Up until like a, the day before my wedding, I was working on this. I was in Seattle and like I remember the day before the wedding, I was just very like numb because I, I was constantly thinking about everything that I saw and it was really hard for me. Um, and I just kind of took on an opportunity impulsively a couple days ago after that really rough day um, and decided to like make the decision to do something or book a trip for just like pure self-care and reflection um, and I haven't done it yet, so maybe I'll let you know how it goes, but yeah, I'm Please just do. kind of taking those actions. I love it. Those are super helpful. Uh, before the last question, I want to, uh, take a moment to honor you. I've, I've, uh, you know, like I said, I've only been following you for, you know, six or seven months now online, and this is the first time we've, we've met, but you, you exude love, um, passion like i mean I, people get, if, even if they don't watch this video that may or may not turn out they're going to be able to feel it through through their so. their earbuds or however they're listening that this is something this is not a gimmick for you this is not your shtick this is your life it is it is something these are things that you really want to embody and they, they're part of you and so i just want to honor the the work that you're doing i want to encourage you to keep keep it up uh, i'm sure many people are doing that not just me but keep it up and we're rooting for you, and we're uh, excited to see how you continue to not just not just influence and affect women, but everybody. Like it's happening for a lot of people, and that's very observable, you know, as a as an onlooker. So keep it up. Thanks, and yeah, yeah thank you for for letting me share this story and for letting me absolutely. rant. Absolutely, absolutely. So how's your heart? My heart is. Um, I feel very good. I yeah. really do. My heart's good for a lot of ways. I have a very supportive, uh, this last 15 months have been, um, since we left Seattle, it's just been a, just, uh, well, there's no other way to say it than a clusterfuck of just, <laughs> just so many successes, so many failures. It's been crazy. And I have an incredibly supportive wife, incredibly supportive kids. They're five, four, and three, and they're amazing. Um, incredibly supportive family and friends, and we're going after a few different projects, and so I feel good. I'm here sitting with you at VaynerMedia. Um, thanks, Claude, for setting this up. Um, getting to talk with people that are giving a damn. Like, my life's amazing. Things are great. That's so, awesome. Yeah, so I'm really excited. Thank you for asking. Um, last question, and I know you have to, we have to wrap this up and you have to go. Um, this is a hypothetical. Yeah. Um, for some odd reason, at the end of your life... Uh, when you die, I'm going to give you a eulogy. <laughs> um, what do you want your legacy to be? What do you hope that I would say in front of uh, your family, your friends, your husband, your kids? Every, everybody's there that you've influenced and loved and had an impact on. And I'm about to speak it. What, what am I saying at that point? I've asked this question to people before, and I don't think anybody's like really straight up asked me that. So that kind of just gave me the chills. One, because I didn't really think about like eulogy. <laughs> um, that, that I just gave everything mm -hmm. to anything that I did. 
Like I always hope that people can see that in every single story that I've done and every single talk that I've given and every single interaction that I have with somebody who pours their heart out to me that I gave them myself entirely. And like I do that all the time because I have gone through such a strong journey of being able to accept myself entirely, being able to love myself entirely. And that wasn't always easy and got to a place of confidence and authenticity and pure vulnerability where I realized that nobody has power over me and nobody can make me feel a certain way unless mm. I allow them to. And so if I'm ever coming across another person, if I'm ever coming to this conversation with you, like I will always give you myself in the most vulnerable way because I know what power that holds. And I know that when people have done that to me, that it has been something that has stuck with me for the rest of my life. And I hope that in every single interaction and every single story that I've told and every single project that I've taken on and every single trip and every single person that I've met on this street that I'm able to do the same. It's a good legacy. I hope so. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really could do this for hours probably with you, but guys and girls, she's a big deal. She's got to go to Forbes for an interview <laughs> and then come back and hang out with Gary Vaynerchuk. So, Dang, that um, sounds pretty cool. It is. It, that's a cool day. <laughs> and you got to hang out with me, but whatever. So thank, oh you my very, gosh. thank you very much. Or we're going to have to do, do this again. again. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it again in a year or so, whatever. Yeah, this is, let's this do is it. Fun. Thank so you so much. Thanks so much for listening, friends. She's amazing, right? Each week, I issue a challenge to you as we conclude our conversations. Here's my challenge to you this week. There's plenty of shit happening around you. But please find ways to verbally be grateful. Say something you're grateful for to yourself in the mirror. Or tell your partner. Or tell your kids. Tell your coworkers. Hell, tell some complete strangers. As Noor stated in our conversation, being proactively grateful literally rewires your brain. And the more grateful you are, the more dams you'll give. 100% guaranteed. Make sure to follow Noor on Instagram at Noor, N-O-O-R, and on Twitter at Ntagori, N-T-A-G-O-U-R-I. To find more information on this podcast conversation and Let's Give a Damn in general, go to letsgiveadam.com. If you love what we're doing on this show, please help us. We need your help. Tell a friend, leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or consider giving us a few dollars each month to support the production of this show at patreon.com forward slash let's give a damn. This podcast was edited and produced by the wonderful Chad Snavely. The music is by the amazing propaganda. Can't wait to spend more time with you again next week. I love you all. Peace.